Hey creepy people, this is P&W Haunts and Homicides. I'm Caitlin. And I'm Cassie. Together we explore stories of the paranormal and true crime throughout the Pacific Northwest. We're just two normal-ish friends who wanted more creepy local stories. Our episodes start with a tarot reading to help us gain some insight on each topic as we share the facts of the case and our interpretations. Come join us. We've got plenty of wine, laughs, and stories to share. You can find our episodes featuring true stories from infamous as well as lesser-known true crime cases like the murders in Tunnel 13 and Forest Park. As well as our spooky stories from Pike Place in the Oregon Vortex on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, and many more. For all of you that are listening, if you have any true crime or paranormal stories that you want us to share, email us at pnwhauntsandhomicides at gmail.com. Have Have a a creepy creepy ass ass day. day. On this episode of Common Mystics, we relate the largely forgotten events of the German Coast Uprising of 1811. I'm Jennifer James. I'm Jill Stanley. We're psychics. We're sisters. We are common mystics. We find extraordinary stories in ordinary places. And today's story comes to you out of the German coast of Louisiana. That's right. Mm. But first, but first, we need to apologize to our good friends <laughs> in Utah. So we were pronouncing the county as Thule, spelled T-O-O-E-L-E. Apparently, we should have been saying Tuwilla. So we apologize to those good people of of Tooele County. County. You- and thank you, Corey, for reaching out to us for correcting us. Thank you, Corey. Jennifer, Mm, Jill, in November 2021, you and I snuck away to Louisiana. We did. We were in New Orleans. We were. uh, New Orleans is amazing. So much. The music, the vibes. The food. The food. I had a beignet. I know. It was an experience. It was Amazing. If I can make Morgan Freeman's voice into a pastry, it would be a beignet. They are incredible. We wanted to see St. Louis Cemetery number one because Marie Laveau is buried there. Mm-hmm. We checked out the hours in advance to make sure it would be open. And yet it was a huge letdown because it was not open and Jennifer would not let me (laughs) climb the wall or host her over. So, yeah, it was padlocked. And there was a sign that said, if you'd like to visit the St. Louis Cemetery, number one, call this number. And we called and we were disconnected like nobody was answering that phone. It was it was disappointing. Yeah, major bummer. But we went to what was it? St. James Square, St. Jackson Square. We went to Jackson Square, and there was a lot going on. So much. Describe it for me. Oh, my gosh. So it's packed with people, people who are selling their artwork and painting and doing chalk pictures, tourists having lunch and roaming around, buskers doing their street music and people listening to them. There were tables set up with different people selling things and psychics and tarot readers. And and then on top of all of that, there was a mass starting 
at the church. So the church bells are ding. The church bells are ringing. And the the priest is walking, (laughs) walking outside. With armed guards. Exactly. No joke. Into the Catholic church. I've never seen a scene like that anywhere else in my life. There were so many different energies, but you and I were experiencing none of them. We were just like observers of yeah. everything going on. It was like we were not in the music scene. Yeah. We were not enjoying the park. We weren't enjoying the psychic. Right. We were just like in our own zone. We felt insulated from what was going on around us. Yeah. Energetically, we weren't in tune with anything happening. So we decided we were going to head out on the road and Mm -hmm. find ourselves a story. Mm -hmm. So we set our intention. Jennifer. Yes. Will you remind everyone of our intention? Of course. It was, as it always is, to find a verifiable story previously unknown to us, which most importantly gives voice to the voiceless. That's right. So we left the city and we were headed towards St. Francisville because, side note, We had a reservation at the Myrtles (laughs) Plantation, which we will talk about later on a different episode. Which will be available on our Patreon. We were headed west on 10 outside of the city. Mm Mm-hmm. True. And as we were making our way, what were you noticing in the car? You know those crosses on the side of the road that people erect when someone dies tragically in a crash? Yeesh. Yes, we I know were, exactly what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, there and those are are always hard. I think always hard to, to anyone empathetic. But we kept noticing them, and we were zeroed in on the crosses. There seemed to be a lot of them at like pretty regular intervals, and it just they really affected us that day. On both sides of the road, too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was that was hard. Mm-hmm. And with that same imagery, when we were talking about the crosses, you said something creepy AF. Mm. I was focused on trees. And in my mind's eye, I was seeing tall tree trunks with blood on them. Yeah, it was unsettling, to say the least. But what were what were you feeling? Because you were feeling some very specific things. Well, I was I'm always drawn to water. And in this case, I was feeling the mighty Mississippi River. Mm -hmm. And I was in my mind's eye under the cloak of darkness. I can see someone walking with at a quick pace along the river. And I thought to myself, well, that's an easy way to get caught Mm. because you can you're so visible even under the cloak of night. Interesting. I was also feeling as if the land was unstable under my feet. Almost, you know, when you stand on like a shoreline and the wave comes in and the wave, when it pulls out, takes the takes the land or the sand from under your toes Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and you kind of shift. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that's how it felt like the land was disappearing from underneath me. Okay, interesting. What were you feeling? You know what? I was focused on Florida. Like I saw a floor. I know, weird. I saw a Florida license plate and it stuck in my mind and I kept seeing it in my mind, like Florida, Florida, Florida. So that was- That is weird. Mm-hmm, that was something that I wrote down. I- You said something very, very specific in the car. I know. It, it's so hard to explain, but it in a male voice, or I was speaking to someone in a male voice. I don't know how to, I knew that I was speaking to a male and the thought came to my head 
that they were going to make an example mm. of him. So literally, I'm sitting in the car and I feel a male presence. And I said to the presence in my in my head, they're going to make an example out of you. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know where that was coming from or what context. Mm-hmm. And in my head, at the same time, I have the quote, I'm not afraid to die. I'm afraid to not have really lived. Jeez, oh, Pete, this is heavy. This already. is heavy. I know. Can I, can we just say here, can we just, I just really want to say this here as well. This story, before we even get into it, is a really good example of a story that the two of us are not comfortable talking about. <laughs> so if we're feeling a little stiff, it's because <laughs> this is where we have to remind ourselves it's not about us. This and, is not about and us. And it's not, at this point, it's not even about entertainment. It's about, we made a contract with Spirit. We asked right. some something to come through. Something came through. And now we're obligated to share this. And it's not at all comfortable. It's not. We. It's not. <laughs> it's it's not. not. But we know, we realize we are imperfect messengers for this story. But nevertheless, they, they charged us with... <laughs> With telling you this tale of tragedy and brutality from Louisiana. So, Jen. All right. So, on that (laughs) cheerful note. (laughs) Transition to. (laughs) Okay. So, um, let's talk a little bit about the history of Louisiana, which in and of itself, everything else aside, is fascinating. Tell me why. Mm. Where are you going with this? The French were the first to establish a foothold in Louisiana. We oui, oui. <laughs> we know this because we talk a lot about our friend Thomas Jefferson and how he bought the Louisiana Territory from the French. But when Louisiana was first founded, of course, it it was the French who were controlling the the territory. And they had carried the first African enslaved people into the area. That is right. For the purpose of establishing very lucrative sugar producing zones in Louisiana. So Louisiana would actually be the first major sugar producing zone in the United States and not coincidentally, the location of the largest uprising of enslaved people to ever happen in the United States. Okay, let's break it down first. Mm. I like sugar, obviously, more than slavery. So tell me about the sugar. Okay, well, sugar, we take it for granted today. But during this... I don't. (laughs) I enjoy every little bit of it. So sugar during the 1700s was huge. There was something called the sugar boom, which happened because the demand for sugar was skyrocketing between like 1710 and 1770, okay? Makes sense to me. And that's because people in Europe were changing their eating habits and they were eating more jam and candy and drinking sweetened teas and cocos, generally eating more sweets. It's addictive. (laughs) It is so addictive. You know, I think sugar is evil. You know this. It's my, uh, you know what? I I'm can't. addicted I'm, I'm, 100% to sugar. I am 100%, 100% addicted to sugar. I don't even want you saying anything bad about it. <laughs> Are you feeling protective? I know. I'm, I'm very sugar. protective. You're rocking. Stop rocking. This is not about you. <laughs> I'm like scratching. I know. It's our addiction. We're both sweating. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> so um, focus, anyway. Focus, focus, focus. <laughs> 
So for example, Jill, in Great Britain alone, in 1770, Great Britain consumed five times as much sugar as they did 60 years before. Five Is times. That a girl? <laughs> mm, mm, mm. Yes, you did. <laughs> yes, you did. And you liked it. But with the increase of demand, you have, you know, the value going up. And so by 1750, sugar is the most valuable product in all European trade. Think about that. Sugar. I. It doesn't seem incredible to me. Like, it totally, like, yeah. Uh-huh. Crazy. <laughs> this tidbit, I think, is super awesome. Tell me. When people bought sugar, like, in the 1700s, it was sold in a loaf, like a loaf of Ooh. bread, like a brick. Just think of like a brick of sugar. So like, like a you- kilo. <laughs> like you're describing a kilo of sugar, which I'm fine with. Go on. So you'd go and you'd buy your sugar loaf, which was essentially a brick of sugar. And I just imagine that they would bring it into the kitchen and you would need special tools to break no, the sugar wouldn't. off. I would use my I'd use my jaw. I'd be like, arc, 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 arc. Yes. The special tools that they had were called sugar nips. And they were like little pliers that you would have to break the sugar off of. Mm. But I just can I just like take you back for a second? Like, remember when we were young and we didn't have a lot of money and there were four of us and mom would like bring groceries home and we would like be like alligators on the kill, like just all like, (laughs) you know, like going at the the cereal that she had upon. And the lunch meat, and, yes, like yes, in an yes. aggressive fighting sort of way. Yeah, I, I would growl. Right. Oh yeah, I would. We were not social people. <laughs> we were like not during like feeding time. This <laughs> is the thing. If you if you were hungry or if you wanted something that mom bought, you had to eat it. Then. You had to eat it fast because if you leave it behind, you then snooze, it's you lose. Anybody? Exactly. You'll get anybody if you don't strike fast and strike hard. <laughs> You don't get any of the fruity pebbles. Oh, my God, Jennifer. I have the best story for this detour. Stop right now. And it's about Dennis. Did we my talk husband? about this already? I, yes. I don't I don't and know. Your wedding you... cake. Oh, did I... we talk about <laughs> I don't because know. that's going to be on the detour. I'm writing it down. OK, oh. which will be available on our Patreon. OK, go on. Okay, I'm just imagining like if if you took our family and transported us to 1700 and mom like dropped a brick of sugar on oh, the kitchen it table. It would be Fight Club. It, it would literally be like four of us came in, one of us will survive. <laughs> For sure. Anyway, I just I just love that idea of a brick, just having a brick of sugar. So again, this was huge and sugar was in demand, which meant the value was in demand, which meant plantations for producing sugar were big business and big money makers. The German coast was located on the east side of the Mississippi in modern day Louisiana. And that was the location for some of the biggest sugar plantations in the area. Because it was the land itself was was a type of quality or fertile enough to, to carry the, the, the sugar and cane. And the climate was such that it was conducive for large plantations of sugar production. I have a stupid question. Why is this called the German coast? It's It was uh, called the German coast because of the Germans who originally settled the area in the 1720s. 
Okay. Tell me a little bit, because I'm imagining as the sugar boom is happening, that more people want to get involved. So more plantations are springing up around the area. So I'm wondering, how does that look like? So I like if I if I'm a plantation owner and I want to get in the biz, what do I do? You need a big piece of land for your plantation Mm -hmm. for planting the sugar cane, but you also need a workforce. So this created a reliance, really, on the influx of Africans being brought over by the French to the Louisiana Territory. And the French started bringing over Africans in 1719. And by 1750, there were thousands of captive Africans that were enslaved primarily to work on these large plantations to produce this this sugar, which, of course, we know was extremely profitable. Does that answer your question? It does. But this is a dark side of sugar that is really uncomfortable when I think about my Twinkies. What would exactly life be like on a plantation for people enslaved? Of course, slavery and manual labor go hand in hand. So we know that in any sort of slave situation, there's going to be hard manual labor, you know, for the benefit of the masters and the plantation owners. But in the case of sugarcane production, the manual labor was extremely dangerous for a lot of different reasons. Well, I mean, slavery itself seems dangerous for, to the slave. But what does that mean that this that in this area with this crop, it's more dangerous? I'm just thinking about like how bad something has to be if it's like like the worst case scenario for slavery. Like slavery is already bad, but we're like, no, no, no. This is like think of like slavery that, you know, times a million on crack. That's where we're at right now. And it makes me remember the people say, I'm going to sell you down river because yeah. that area of the country was such a was such a hard place to right. be enslaved. Like, and I know that, like sounds, that was a threat. That I was know. a threat. To, they were going to sell you down river. Yes, that was a common threat. Yes. Like, how bad does it have to be to be the hell of hell? You know what right. I mean? So sugarcane production is highly labor intensive in the growing and processing of it. And the enslaved Africans were not only responsible for working in the fields and cultivating and harvesting the sugar cane, but also the production of the sugar. Enslaved people had to work for long hours, 4 a.m. till sunset often, and they would be working in the scorching subtropical heat with planting and maintaining and harvesting the crop. And they would have to cut the sugar cane, which is a large plant, by hand with curved machetes and then load those large stems onto carts. So that in and of itself, if you can imagine being in the sun, being hot, wielding a machete in in the sweating, sweltering heat, that would be very dangerous and very unpleasant and backbreaking. You had told me that during like the harvest season that they would schedule the labor force on the plantation, i.e. the enslaved people, 24 hours a day to process that crop. That is true, because after they took it and put it on the carts, they brought it to the mills, which were located on the plantation. And it's at the mills where large crushing apparatuses would slowly squeeze and extract the juices from the crop. And 
as it was crushed by a huge three roller mill, the juice was then boiled. So it's already hot. And now you're in this contained hut where you're boiling this cane juice. It must have been excruciating. People would toil 24 hours a day in the mill. And also, they would be working under the strict supervision of their European supervisors who would be working for the the plantation owners, right? Mm -hmm. And this is so horrible. I don't even want to utter it. But there was a, a real fear that the enslaved people would eat the sugar. And so to prevent them from eating the sugar, as if the conditions weren't bad bad enough, they would be gagged often with gags in their Mm -hmm. mouths. Mm -hmm. And some of them would have their mouths actually locked shut with a padlock to keep them from sampling the sugar. I mean, they're enslaved, they're working 24-7, and hell yeah, if that were me, first of all, I would have to be like <laughs> locked up like Anthony Hopkins meeting the senator in <laughs> Silence of the Lamb, like full on, like, yes, lock me up. But I can't even picture it. What would a lock on someone's I don't, mouth? I don't even want to go there. I, it, oh. it, to me, it's I can't even wrap my head around it because it seems so medieval. It seems like hell. It does. And not only that, but every every person, every enslaved person was expected to work during these times. The women, the children, even the elderly were expected to work while sugar was being processed. The Christian imagery of hell is hot. You know what I mean? Like hot, you're working, you're that like literally this describes hell, especially if there is sugar available and I can't taste it. Yeah. But I do want to talk a minute about the slave drivers. Who are they? Well, the slave drivers were enslaved men who were in charge of the other subordinate enslaved people. And oftentimes the slave driver, even though he himself was enslaved, was aligned with the plantation owner. So he would be sometimes described as the right hand man. The slave driver often had greater freedom than and the other slaves slave. beneath. Yes, the other slaves beneath him, but would often have privileges and better living conditions. When you say he's a the word driver, what does that mean? He was a slave driver, like he. So he was the he man managing- literally driving the other enslaved people. He was driving them to work harder. Yes, with how a whip. does it? How does like how do you drive someone to work harder? Well, how do you think? With brutality, with uh, with violence and brutality. He didn't ask them nicely. Oh, pretty please. No, it was. That's crazy. That's. Oh, God. Why would he do that? Why would he do that? I'm just I'm just talking about that position of slave driver was a real thing. And it would come up later. Th- I, this know, idea I know. Of, of an enslaved person who was in charge of brutalizing and beating and motivating by brutality. Yeah. Right. Jeez, this is. Yeah, that's not cool, man. That's an understatement. But I'm saying I, the, I think that when I think of like the slave driver, I would think of somebody who is 
if I were looking at it from a slave point of view, if I were channeling right now, it would be a position that I would probably want, even though it sounds horrible. Do you know what I mean? Well, because it would come with privileges. Right. Right. And more freedoms and better conditions. You know, you and I had spoken about slavery before, and it occurs to me that you keep using the word African as opposed to enslaved people. Why? Why? So I already mentioned that the French were bringing Africans to the Caribbean islands and to Louisiana to work these large plantations. I just I don't understand. How would the French get Africans, just get Africans and bring them to Louisiana? Because in West Africa, different tribes were at war. Like the same way indigenous people of of our continent were warring. Yes. Right. Okay. Okay. Not unlike that. Okay. And when one tribe would win and subjugate the other, they would sell them to the French, who would then import these Africans where they would be forced to work on these plantations. So many of the slaves in this period of time were people who had been soldiers, who had 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 a life in Africa and were then transported and expected to now live the life of a slave. So this wasn't like second, third generation enslaved people of the United States. This was like firsthand, like I had a life, I had a farm, I had a family, and now they're just find themselves sold into the worst condition. Yes, for many, for many, that is true. Not for all, of course. These are people who had a life and many had a military background because they had been fighting in the civil wars in the African countries before being being sold and then, you know, forced into bondage. Okay, so slavery is growing in this area of the world and French people are rounding up literal Africans to supply the free slave labor in this territory. So that's happening. We just went through in the late 1700s, the American Revolution, the French Revolution. Then what else is going on? So also in Haiti, which is another French holding where there's also these huge sugar plantations, the enslaved Haitians revolt. They stage a revolution that is ultimately successful. Shut up. And the Haitians who had been enslaved successfully overthrow the French, overthrow the sugar plantation owners and established their own government and their own their own state. Hell yeah. Good on them. Oh, my God. That that when do you when does that ever happen? Oh, that's amazing. This is a unique example of this actually happening. Like, I don't think there's another example in world history of enslaved people actually successfully overthrowing the, their entire system and ousting their captors their Yes. Yes. That's their a- captors. That is amazing. I a know. Friggin amazing. So that culminated that ended in 1804. How does that affect our story in Louisiana? Such a good question. Thank you. (laughs) Because after that happened in Haiti, the planters who were overthrown, well, they still wanted to make money on the sugar plantations. So many of them came over 
to the Louisiana Territory. Oh, my God. Yes. So there, there's a flood now from the Caribbean island of Haiti. There's a flood of the planters who are bringing their enslaved people with them. Yeah, the ones they were able to retain. Exactly. Mm-hmm. To establish and grow this economy. And also, there is a population of free Haitians, free people of color who are coming to the mainland for increased opportunities. Wow. To live as free people. So you have an influx of free people of color and you have an influx of this this sugar plantation society. So if I channel and picture myself in Louisiana at this time, and all of a sudden these newcomers are coming because of the fact that there was a slave revolt that successfully taken control of the government of Haiti. I wouldn't even call it a slave revolt. I would call it a revolution. That's- it was a straight up revolution. I would be seriously affected by that. And I would look around and be like, you guys, did you hear what I just heard? Right. And they would have all known about it. Yeah, That's big news. That is big news. So you yeah, you I mean, you can imagine that people who are enslaved on these plantations with the knowledge that it can happen. We really can overthrow our captors and be free and establish our own government in our own state. That's everything. It feels like a perfect storm is a Bruin. That is the truth. But not only that, there's something else about the geography of the area that's notable. Tell me. And that is if someone who is enslaved decided to free themselves, in other words, run away, the geography was such that They had a lot of luck hiding because you're looking at bayous and little islands and swamps and areas that are hard to traverse, um, but easily hidden in if you wanted to hide. So the geography actually lends itself to, you know, hiding because there's areas of the bayou that people just didn't want to go into because it was like miserable. Yeah, I just feel I just. I can feel and hear insects around me right now just thinking about it. Yeah. And like you said earlier, one of your hits was that the land was unstable and and it would have been. You're talking about very difficult area to to get through. But over the years, there were colonies of so-called maroons. They're actually called maroon colonies of People who had been formerly slaves who had successfully escaped and established colonies where they lived in freedom, kind of hidden on in the these bayou. in these areas. Yeah, on the, in the bayou. Yeah. And they would over time develop their own culture and, and Creole society. Well, that's very cool. So tell me, there is a perfect storm a Bruin in Louisiana. Yes. You have terrible, terrible working conditions in the territory, specifically on the German coast. You have large populations of enslaved people on the German coast who, by the way, outnumber their white enslavers by far. You have a successful uprising in Haiti that demonstrated that enslaved people can overthrow their oppressors and establish a free state. Then you have the example of the success of the free people of color that are now living in the area and a geography that's difficult to 
to traverse and would effectively hide and protect the people who had freed themselves or escaped. Okay, so shit is about to go down. What does that look like? What is the shit that is about to hit the fan? So in 1811, we have the German Coast Uprising. It all started with a revolt at the plantation of Manuel Andre on January 8th, 1811. Now, Andre was one of the biggest slaveholders in the area. He owned more than 80 enslaved men, women, and children. And this in particular, Jill, in January, this is a period when work kind of relaxed for a minute because they weren't actively planting or harvesting or processing the sugar. So this was kind of downtime. Yeah, we weren't in the 24-hour days. Exactly. Now, there was one particular enslaved man. His name was Charles DeLonde. He was working at the Andre Plantation. He happened to be a slave driver. Mm. So remember how I described this was a more privileged position that had more freedoms and better conditions, right? Right. It seems as if a slave driver, as you described it, would be more apt to socialize with like the plant, the plantation owner, as opposed to the the slaves. Let, yes. And let me tell you this, too, about Charles DeLonde. There is a lot of conflicting information on him and his life and as well as this entire event. So we have sources from the Internet, but also we have original sources. And Jill, we also are taking a lot from a book that we both found on Audible called The 1811 German Coast Uprisings, The History and Legacy of America's Largest Slave Revolt by Charles River Editors. So a lot of this information is coming from a variety of sources. And just please know that there is some conflicting information. We don't know a lot about Charles's life. We do know that he was a slave driver. And Jill, I believe that we both talked previously before we started recording about his freedoms. Yes, he I feel like he had a very unique set of privileges to even a slave driver's position. Because? Because he himself was born on a plantation to a enslaved mother, but a white father. So his skin color was lighter. Mm -hmm. He had um, a girlfriend and he would frequent her where she lived on her plantation. He also was able to to travel to other plantations like James Brown's plantation. Yeah. It appeared that he had a lot of freedom. He got around. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. And it also feels as if not only did Andre trust him, but James Brown trusted him. The plantation in which his girlfriend lived, her master trusted him. Otherwise, why would you let Charles just pop in whenever he wanted? Right. So we have this very important figure who has really the opportunity to lead an insurrection, which is ultimately what he does. So on January 8th, Charles, this man who had opportunity to plan with other enslaved people of other plantation, started the revolt. He did. On January 8th, 1811, tell me what happens. At the Andre plantation where he was working, he rallies the enslaved men and they strike and wound 
Manuel Andre and kill his son Gilbert. Then they loot the house and take firearms, but also militia uniforms because Andre was actually a leader of the local militia. Wow. And so there were uniforms available and the insurgents stole and wore the uniforms. I like it. It would lend credibility to their campaign. Authority. Ooh, I like it. Legitimacy, Mm -hmm. right? Remember, I'm going to say this again. Many of the enslaved people, many of the insurgents had been warriors and uh, fighters in Africa. So they put on these uniforms and then they continue down the German coast, which is on the east side, following the Mississippi River, going from one plantation to the next, assembling more and more enslaved people to join this cause and this revolt. So you would see the numbers swell as people from the plantations are being liberated and joining the marching. Right. They started with about 15 and would end up, according to eyewitnesses, anywhere from 250 to 500. So they would pick up more and more as they went from one plantation to the next. Now, I will say this. Not all the enslaved people at each plantation acted the same way. What do you mean? When they arrived at a plantation, a small group would join But some of them would actually try to protect the plantation owner and the family and warn others of what was coming. Yeah. Well, that's interesting because my assumption would be that everyone would be like, hell yeah, I'm on board with this. No, no, not at all. Some were the opposite, thinking I'm not part of this. And so I'm going to help you thinking that, I don't know, perhaps they'll get better treatment in the future. I don't know. Or just not get in trouble. Not even better treatment. Just like, don't, like, not me. I love the story of Bazile. I love that story. Yeah. So, for example, they arrived at this one plantation. It was one of the largest and wealthiest on the German coast. I'm not sure how to say the name. The Melion Plantation. The rebels laid waste to the house and they tried to set it on fire, but an enslaved person named Bazile fought the fire and actually saved the house. That's insane. Yeah. And that's just one example of how some of them, you know, worked in opposition. I just want to say this, even though she was working in opposition, honestly, good on her because that takes some balls to go against like an insurrection, right? And to be like, what are you guys doing? And save the plantation house. Right. That must have been hard. That must to have been do, ballsy. To stand up to a... Completely, yeah. yeah. Stand uh-huh. up to a mob. Absolutely. Well, and be careful because it wasn't a mob. It was Tell me, actually, what do you mean? It was actually a very organized event. They were marching like in formation. They were beating drums. Um, they were waving flags. They were carrying a variety that of weapons. literally sounds like military tactics. Literally is what you're describing. It was more of an army than a mob. It was a very organized operation that had taken months to plan. Okay, then what happened? At the plantation of James Brown, an enslaved man named Cook 
one of the most active participants and one of the most key figures in the uprising. He was actually one of the leaders of the uprising. He joined the insurrection and he attacked and killed Francois Trepanier with an axe. Mm. Trepanier was the second and last planter to be killed in the rebellion. Wow. After they passed the La Branche plantation, they stopped at the home of a local doctor. And finding the doctor gone, Kook set his house on fire. Kook, like, he was, like, all in. Like, he went to an 11. Just saying. Like, that would be me. I would be, like, the animal muppet of the the revolution. I would be like, burn everything down. I would be like, burn it all down. Enough's enough. We're getting out of this. After nightfall, they were about 15 miles outside of New Orleans. They had traveled between 15 and 22 miles over the course of like seven to 10 hours. Mm. And again, like I said, accounts estimate that they were numbered anywhere between 220 to 500 people at that point. They were mostly young men between the ages of 20 and 30. But Jill, you have to understand that 30 years old, what you were reaching like the end of your lifespan if you were a person living enslaved in this area at the time. That's that's absolutely right. The The average age of an enslaved person to pass at would have been 40 years old. 40 years old. If you were a slave driver, an enslaved slave driver, you may live until 60. So wow. 30, you're, you're getting a senior discount somewhere. <laughs> During their two-day, 20-mile march, the men burned five plantation homes, three completely to the ground. They burned the sugar houses, and they burned the crops. And they were armed with some muskets, hand tools, axes, machetes, that sort of thing. Mostly the tools that they used to harvest and to... Right. Well, that would be what they had the most access to, I imagine. Yeah. There is also some reports that they had horses. Some of them had horses as well. Do you think they had horses? I think they had a few horses. I don't think they had like a cavalry or anything. But so by sunset on January 9th, the following day, uh, two companies of volunteer militia, 30 U.S. Army soldiers and a detachment of 40 sailors from the U.S. Navy were sent to fight the insurgents. They were attacked by approximately 80 militiamen who were assembled by the local planter, Charles Perret. And Perret ordered his militia to attack. And he later wrote that there were about 200 men. He said that there were half of them on horseback. I think that is an exaggeration. It sounds to be an exaggeration. It sounds like he wants to make his, quote unquote, his victory sound more impressive. Mm-hmm. But anyway, uh, the wounded Manuel Andre was there, too. He was an eyewitness and he reported to the governor of the territory, Governor Claiborne, that it was a great slaughter. Wow. And in truth, within half an hour, 40 to 45 of the insurgents had been had been murdered, had been killed. Oh, God. and the well, the remainder were able to slip away through the woods and the swamps. Here we go back to that geography. Right. Well, that's good. And uh, Perez and Andre's militias did pursue them um, despite the difficult terrain. But they ended up a few days later employing Native American trackers and using hunting dogs, too, to literally hunt them down. 
What happened to Charles? Well, Charles Delon. Charles Delon. He was, like I said, considered the principal leader of the bandits. Um, that's a quote. And he was the leader. So they did indeed make an example of him. He was, he didn't get a trial and he didn't, he was never officially interrogated. But instead, they simply executed him. And this is where it gets kind of graphic. So those of you who are more sensitive listeners, you might want to fast forward this little bit. They chopped off his hands and they broke both of his legs. And then they shot him in the body. And before he had expired, he was put in a bundle of straw and roasted. And his cries under torture could be heard by the escaped insurgents in the marshes. That seems like overkill. That, again, is medieval. Like, in my head, I'm thinking Braveheart. You know, Mel Gibson's Mm -hmm. character, like, over the top. Like, way over the top. Torture, brutality, violence. It's hard... It's hard to connect 1800s North American continent with what you just said. Like, it's hard for my brain to go there. I know. It's godless. So, of course, the the militia, with the help of the United States forces, like I said, had successfully suppressed the insurrection. The planters and the government officials continue to search for people who escaped. And those captured later were interrogated and jailed before trial. And over the next two weeks, they would interrogate, try, execute, and decapitate an additional 44 people. Jesus, why are they decapitating people? They were decapitating them so that they could display the heads on pikes. Oh, my Lord. The heads of those executed were put on pikes and the mutilated bodies of the dead rebels were displayed to intimidate other enslaved people. And by the end of January, by the end of that month, nearly 100 heads were displayed on the levee from central New Orleans along River Road to the plantation district and Andre's plantation. So in effect... They lined the road literally from Andre's plantation to New Orleans. It literally screams to me like Vlad the Impaler, like like that, like Dracula, like literally medieval, like, holy shit. Like, really? I am speechless. Like, how do you get back from that? Yeah. How do you heal? How do you heal? This is part of the United States history. I had never heard of it. Never, ever heard of it. Never heard of it. It's it's traumatic to know. Like, as a flag-waving, fireworks-shooting-off American, like, this is really hard to hear. And it just seems next level. Like, just next level. Like, it did not have to be like that. Like, they went way overkill on so many different things. I mean, yeah, it, oh, I just can't. I can't. What were some of the consequences of this event? The consequences were the plantation owners were doubling down on people of color. There was next level brutality. 
So plantation owners would be especially brutal, more so in driving their workforce or enslaved people. There was actual reports of European people saying, hold on, this is too much, not because they were concerned about the life or the brutality that was being implemented on the enslaved people, but because they were being beaten and tortured so much that they couldn't work anymore. Also, one of the unforeseen consequences was that nobody of color, free or enslaved, was able to congregate in a group setting other than on Sundays for church There were curfews for anyone of color, free or enslaved, and they weren't allowed to go into pubs at a certain time of day. That sounds like the worst thing. (laughs) It's so interesting looking back at the historical records because there's literally nothing that I could find out of Louisiana discussing this event. It was like all hush hush. And the papers in Philadelphia and Boston and places out east that were reporting on it, they were getting the information from the white plantation owners, from Andre himself writing letters to the editors about the events. Why was it hush hush? Like, what was the deal? The planters in control painted a picture of a group of rebels who were just rowdy and it wasn't a big deal because they were downplaying the severity of the situation. The territory was trying to be admitted as a state to the United States. And the United States would not have looked favorably on a situation that was volatile like that. So they were downplaying the whole event. But like the Smithsonian Magazine reported, the official accounts at the time spun the fiction that the revolt was nearly a band of brigands out to pillage and plunder. But this is the story of the victors, not the story of what really happened. In reality, the revolt was carefully organized. And by the way, it threatened to destabilize the institution of slavery in Louisiana. The revolt had been much larger and had come much, much closer to succeeding than the planters and the American officials led on. Those planters were scared. Yeah, they were. They're like, "Uh uh-uh. Yeah, they were. So that's why they downplayed it. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. And with it, they downplayed the intelligence and the skill and the military prowess of these people who had actually taken place in the revolt. So, Jennifer. Yes. Out of all this, who do you think are voicelesses? I think it's obvious that our voiceless are the people who were who lived through this event, the people who had the courage to rise up against their oppressors and take control of their lives, um, even though it meant really certain death. You know, it's it's funny along those same lines. I was telling you yesterday that I have I believe that I have the ability to have a say in how I live and how I die like if I die I can tell you right now it's probably going to be a fatty liver disease cirrhosis or diabetes in some way these people 
they really like this moment in time where them to be like, I am taking some bit of control over my destiny, whether it be to live this way. Right. Or to die. Right. It's I can't even fathom that choice, but specifically Charles, Mm -hmm. because he, like we had said, was in a position of relative privilege and he gave up a a cushier life yeah, he did. than many of the other people and was ultimately, he was made an example of in a terrible, brutal, unthinkable way. And that leads us right into our hits. Tell me, what are you, what are you thinking? Well, when you said they made an example of you, holy crap, that's exactly what, what was written about him. <sighs> wow. Are you just saying that to make me feel good? No, that's that's really amazing. Okay, what other hits did we have that make sense? Uh, the Florida connection. Charles was actually born in Spanish Louisiana, which was at the time called West Florida. That's crazy talk. I know, it is crazy. The land unstable, that seems to me like the marshes, the enslaved right. people who fled to the swamps. Mm-hmm. And lived in the maroons. Yeah, totally. Following the Mississippi... They exactly what that's exactly what they did. They followed along the Mississippi and it was the easiest way to get caught, <laughs> which is, you know, Urgh. Urgh. oh, my gosh. What about the crosses? Why do you think we were so focused on the crosses marking the road on 10 West? It is incredibly hard to think about. It's the, it's the impaled body parts of the enslaved on the poles. On the pikes. On the pikes, right. And that leads me back to when I was seeing tree trunks with blood on them. Because I imagine that the pikes were essentially, you know, trunks of trees. Mm -hmm. God, Jennifer. What do you think this all has to do with us being like blocked in Louisiana? We talked about how we were kind of blocked in Louisiana. Do you think this, these events that took place so close to New Orleans had anything to do with with our feelings of being not uh, in sync energetically? Uh, Yes, I do. I feel like our story was not in the city proper. What do you think? I think we were picking up on energies from a different place in time. All of the, the selling and the art and the church Everything happening there, I think we were feeling energies from 200 years before, and that made us feel like we didn't really want to be involved in what was around us. It just seemed perverse. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It feels like if I were beaten and captured and were like kind of out of my mind, like floating above my body, that's kind of how we felt with the scene in Louisiana, Right. In I'm sorry, New Orleans specifically. It's like we were there, but we weren't there there. Like we were. Right. Well, let me tell you this. Eleven insurgents were publicly hanged on Jackson Square. Where we were. Where we were. Yeah. Yeah. So that makes sense. Yeah. If spirits of the enslaved people that had gone through this event were trying to get our attention, the way that they would have felt in that square is kind of like in autopilot, like you're you, it, 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 like you're there, but you're not there there. They're kind of out of their body experiencing ultimately their death. Ugh. Right. Gosh. Jennifer, how do we come back from this? Oh, how? No, like, really? Like, how? 
How does it end? I just want to say again, the imperfect messengers for this story, but thank you, Spirit, for bringing it to us so that we can talk about it because I literally never heard this in history. Hopefully our listeners will respond in a similar way. Well, thank you, Jennifer. <laughs> thank for doing you, this with me. It was very uncomfortable. <laughs> I'll tell you, I feel <laughs> even like having this conversation about how, like the dark side of sugar, like in ways like I don't know, like I, I, I'm going to have like, trust me, I'm going to warm up to the Twinkies again, but it's going to take a minute. <laughs> tell the people where they can find us. Well, check out our website, commonmystics.net. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and wherever you're listening to your favorite podcast. But if you happen to be listening on Apple, please take the time to leave us a positive review so other people can find us. Thank you, guys. Good night. <laughs>